Thanks to patrons Gravity Fish and Ready Key for supporting this podcast directly. You can also help make this show possible by visiting newdisrupt.org slash support, which explains the details. Thank you. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that says, as the sands of digital time drop into our electronic hourglass, so too are the days of our crowdfunding. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of The Magazine. The New Disruptors is now a proud member of the Boing Boing podcasting family. You can find us either at boingboing.net or at newdisrupt.org. Dean Potney has made some of your favorite things on the internet. He's Boing Boing's software developer, as well as working with many other sites. But what he's working on at the moment takes him a hundred years into the past, and, and we'll talk about that today. Dean, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Glenn. Very glad to have you on. And um, we met in person for the first time after many years of uh, the online thing and talked about your current project. So we're, we're going to talk about that today. But I wanted to go delve a little into your past, your deep, dark past of being a, a meme creator and an electronic guy working with Boing Boing and the rest. How did you get sucked into this whole uh, online development and animated GIF world that you find yourself in? <laughs> Uh, well, I, I'm from I'm from Maine originally, and in Maine there's really not a whole lot to do. Uh, it's it's pretty quiet and secluded, and we live by the beach, and you get the snow in the winter, and you kind of can't go outside. My brother solved this problem by going outside no matter what, and he'd go skateboarding and like snow sledding, and uh, just go be outside constantly and work on cars and lawnmowers and stuff, but. But I kind of uh, drew back. I found the computer in the basement and got really sucked into it and realized there's something really special here that I want to spend basically all of my time with. Uh, my parents thought I was crazy. They didn't – they tried to get me to go outside and go do other things and I just only wanted to be on the computer all day. And um, that was interesting because I, I got exposed to a lot of the very early internet culture. I figured out how this thing works and what makes things on the internet interesting and what makes them, I started to wonder how do you use this tool and realize this is, this is uh, the most direct conduit between knowledge and power in my mind. Uh, the internet is, is very, very powerful and all you need to do is think about it and consider how, how to use it. So I was, very much drawn to that. And then I went to a boarding school in really far northern Maine, <laughs> and <laughs> it got even worse. So I could could never escape it. I started reading about San Francisco pretty much constantly because that's where it was all happening. I was reading Laughing Squid. And, and it was warm. It was warm in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. Trying to trying to escape the snow. That's been my, my whole life. Uh, yeah. You, you read a lot about San Francisco in Laughing Squid and in pretty much everywhere on the internet. Boing Boing and all these guys. So yeah, I kind of knew that I wanted to be out here at some point, and here I am, right out of pretty much right out of college. I moved here, got out here as fast as possible, and the Boingers have been huge help with that. So even when you were in college, you were you were kind of uh, you know one of the um, it's not the enfant terribles. You weren't uh, you weren't terrible. <laughs> you were, but you're one of the people who benefited from 
And there, I mean, there's a lot of stories like this too, where it didn't, your age didn't matter because uh, there's a lot of issues about whether the internet is a meritocracy and all of that. But there is definitely the case that in programming circles, especially, and, and I think also increasingly in like mimetic circles, like creating culture, age is not a deterrent to people paying attention to you and accepting you, or they may not even know how old you were. Cause you got kind of sucked into things at a, at a youngish age. It was before you were out of college that you were participating in like, in like the culture at a level at which other people were paying attention. Uh, yeah, I started working for Boing Boing when I was 19, and they thought I was a grad student. Uh, they they allowed me to basically take over all of their software, <laughs> which may or may not have been a good idea for them, but uh, I think it's worked out pretty well. So far, so yeah. good. Well, that's like David David Karp, who founded Tumblr. Uh, he was, I think Marco was in his Marco Arment, who. Uh, uh, founded the magazine and Instapaper and all that. So Marco, I think, was like 23 when he went to work for David, and they didn't meet in person for a long time. And I think David was 17, but nobody knew this. He, he's like, they thought David was in his 20s, living in some whatever. He's like, no, David was 17, I think, still living at home. Um, but it's There's a certain thing where, like, what you do speaks so much louder than everything else, and people aren't meeting you in person. You're working remotely. So they're like, oh, it's Dean. Dean's going to do this for us. Yeah, I've I've just always projected myself as the guy who's going to get things done. Uh, and and that works really well. I like, love that guy. Pe- yeah, the I'm guy. the guy that you call when there's an emergency or when something is wrong, and I just say, "Don't even worry about it. It's 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 taken care of." And that's and that's what they want to hear. There is some crises when I was uh, I know at Boing Boing where there are things like you know Boing Boing is a subject of a lot of attack. It's not a it's not. A, I mean, I guess I would say it's so much tamer in terms of. Well, it's always more moderate in terms of like actually using reasoning and so forth. But it's not like 4chan or some of these other sites or or sites that are vitriolic or, or whatever. But Boing Boing has certainly always attracted people who attack them for a political stance or even a, you know covering some technology issue that someone doesn't want to be covered. So you were dealing with when you say you're the guy people called. You know there were times when people were attacking and taking the site down. Yeah, sure. I've gotten calls at four in the morning and while I'm studying for midterms or something and uh, and take care of it uh, and then go to class at 8 a.m., you know, but <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, m- part of it is they want to know that you're going to take care of the problem. And then part of it is they want to know that you're going to do it right. And that's, those are the two things that are involved with getting things done. So in the years uh, since starting to work for Boing Boing and then graduating, you, you know, a lot of your time has been devoted, I know, to software development. But you've always, I mean, I, was, I brought up the GIF thing earlier. Like people know you, I think, in part as, oh, Dean's the guy who is like a curator of animated GIFs and makes animated GIFs. So if you if I have a question about anything to do with that part of culture, it's like Andy Bayo and Supercuts. It's like Dean and animated GIFs. I come to you and I'll ask you the question. How how did you get sucked into to that? Was that something you were messing around with or did you did you start cultivating like I kind of like this so I'm going to make a collection? Yeah, I definitely had a collection. I, this kind of was something that built out of my old days on 4chan and on the internet where I would save images and save things that I really liked. So, I it would be hard to download things again and you'd have to and you'd want to show them to oh, your yeah. friends and you'd save them to a folder. And at one point, I realized, oh, I have all these GIFs that are just in this folder because I think they're funny or because I'm saving them for one reason or another. I need an easier way to search through them and to to share them with people. And if I have to go and find it in the folder and then upload it or, you know, do something in Dropbox, this is kind of a waste of time. So I just wrote a – like I, I think I used IFTTT, uh, if this and that, to basically just 
make a fire hose every time I add a new GIF to the folder, upload directly to the to the website. This, and that's a nice tool. That's the uh, was it if if uh, this then that. Or yeah, something. that's it's right. A, yeah, it's like a, a scripting. It's like scripting for the internet. And Twitter sort of broke it, but you used to be able to do or broke some of it. You used to be able to say like, I, here's a sequence of things I want to have happen, and it involves you know some things could happen locally and on the net and whatever. It was kind of a. I mean, it's still there. I shouldn't say it isn't, but it was a neat conduit tool for people who wanted to script actions. Yeah, it's very simplistic and it's really not that fast, but it gets the job done for things that you don't really care about how quickly it happens. It's pretty effective. It. Well, so the the project that we're talking about today, um, it's uh, it's kind of a departure from you. It's not uh, – it has an electronic component, but it's not a primarily electronic thing. It does not involve programming code and it does not involve uh, lolcats and things moving around and dancing rainbows and so forth. Uh, let, let's – this is – I think this is um, – I wrote about it a little bit on the blog at newdisrupt.org uh, when your Kickstarter was underway and uh, – I'd love to start with the story of, um, you know, this is a family history story is where it begins. Um, when did you find out about this treasure trove of, uh, I guess I should say, you know, tell, tell everybody about the treasure trove of photographs. When did this come into your life as part of your family history? So I knew some, a few things about my great grandfather on my mother's side, but really not a whole lot of experience. You hadn't, didn't really know much about him. But I was home in 2000, I guess 2011, for Thanksgiving. And I was, we were visiting and we were kind of hanging out. And I was getting ready to go back to San Francisco. And my mom says, hang on one second. Let me get this. You need to see this before you go home. And she pulls out this black photo album. Uh, it's about 11 inches by 13 inches. And she says, you got you to gotta look at this before you go. And I start to open it up. And it's what it is, is it's a 100-page photo album that shows uh, my great-grandfather, Walter. He took about 700 to almost 1,000 photos throughout World War I. And the album is laid out in chronological order with these little episodes that explain different sections of what he was doing in the war. And the, the photos are, are very well preserved. They're, un, they're very special and they're unusual because they're not so much posed. And thing, lots of photos at that time period were, were posed images. They were... Uh, something like you'd organize to take this photo. And we have other family photo albums that predate this that are entirely posed photos. But Walter is just going around with his film camera taking photos of what's going on around him. And I had just finished a year-long course at Carnegie Mellon, where I went to school, that was about the history of photography. Mm. I've always been very interested in photography and the history of photography is particularly fascinating to me. I spent a lot of time at the SF MoMA visiting and looking at their photography exhibits. And I used to take people on dates and talk to them about like, Oh yeah, look at this. And I, you know, I know all, all these different things. And, uh, it, it's just very, very interesting. This is taught by the, so the, the course was taught by the curator of the photography department at the Carnegie Museum of Art. And she also was the previously the curator of, the Polaroid collections and uh, she taught, she taught a great course. So when I saw these photos, I knew 
a few different things. First of all, I noticed this is coming up on the centennial. This is 2011 and we're coming up on 2014. And I thought, oh God, these are almost 100 years old now. And I knew that a lot of these photos don't really survive that long. Uh, their photos from this war are unusual to begin with. They tend to not be in large collections. They tend to not be um, well-preserved and they're disorganized. And they also definitely are not from the German side of the war. So Walter, as a German, taking these photos and then still having them after the war and keeping them for this long, really unusual. So I took photos of each page of the album and with my digital camera that I had, I had my tripod and my, my 5D with me and I was taking photos of each page and I went home and started really digging into it. And I did a bunch of research and I posted it on Reddit. Hmm. And I said, hey, can you help me? I said, Re researching my great-grandfather's photo album from his time as an aerial photographer in World War I, can you help me? Photos inside and I just posted everything. You should, we should point out, these aren't photos. Um, that's the amazing thing is it's not just uh, uh, someone down in the trenches or something. I mean, he has, there, I know there's photos that are ground photos. And there's ones that are, uh, you know, someone standing somewhere taking the picture. But he had that, uh, the, the aerial part is even more astonishing because there wouldn't be that many pictures that survived from that time of any kind. Because you have to be in a military aircraft just about to have, uh, to have had an vantage point. Right. And, and so he's, he's mostly taking candidates. These are mostly just him going around taking photos. And when you see his images in the trenches, it's apparent that he should not be taking a photo right then. <laughs> like the, the looks on these people's faces, are they're terrified. They're firing, you know, grenades out of rifles at the enemy. Right. And here's Walter with his camera. You know, they're looking at him like, what are you doing? Why are you? We're we're getting gonna get killed, dude. It's always a question. I mean, World War One. There's so many people put into the trenches, and you know, it was cannon fodder, right? That was the whole thing. Is a terrible, seemingly endless war. Was he was he a photographer? So he didn't carry arms, or did he have to fight and shoot and and do the rest too? He's in he's a, he was in the reserve artillery battalion. Mm. So he was he he is moving cannons around, and he was involved in trench warfare. And he's actually not a military photographer. Uh, it seems to be that they grabbed him for a few special missions. Oh, I see. Okay. And saw, just saw him going around with his camera and said, Walter, you know, get in the plane. <laughs> off you go. You're not dead. You have a camera. Let's go take some pictures. Yeah. He, he, it wow. seems to be a lot of opportunity where he showed up and he just said yes to these missions where um, he's, he's just in the right place at the right time. And he, there are stories of him in the biplanes changing out the plates from the from the the camera as they're flying in the middle of the you know going through and flying and he's his he's all wrapped up and he's got his big heavy gloves on and having a hard time changing the plates in the in the plane which is another interesting point that this is the this is where the photography is switching from metal and glass plates to film right so not only is Walter taking a lot more photos and they're better preserved than what's going on, but he, he saved all the negatives. So we have like four, three or 400 negatives from this time period that are just really well-preserved and extremely unusual. Um, these, are, these are flexible because he made the transition. These are the flexible film 
negative. Right. These are like, I guess, celluloid yes. or something like that. Uh, oh, God. You know, it's even funny. Wow. That's interesting because uh, I know from the motion picture side, right, there was nitrate stock uh, used in motion picture film until the 1930s. And I think it was switched out for camera film earlier, but nitrate – well, no, I shouldn't say it was the 1950s in film, but it was a slow transition to safety, like acetate safety stock sure. that didn't spontaneously combust because nitrate breaks down into a gas and becomes gooey and then you can open it up and it'll catch on fire. But if it doesn't catch on fire, it dissolves. So there's a point before this as well where photographers, like average photographers, would be walking around with negatives that would just have essentially melted or burst into flame. Yeah, I'm not sure how much that applies to these negatives, but yeah, it, th there are a number of different things that could have happened to them. I mean, if, if they still exist and they were late enough that they're stable, <laughs> they're, they haven't, yeah. they, they look great. I'm looking at the picture on your Kickstarter of, uh, of some of them and, you know, they look like they're in, in impeccable condition. They, they really are, uh, which is... I've actually been able to print from them in the darkroom, which is – I put that up as like a really high-level reward on my Kickstarter, like $500, and I'll print you one from the negative. But they, they're pristine. They're in really great condition, and I, I've been going through and scanning them, and at some point I'm hoping to get professionals to help me with that because I'm worried about preserving them. Mm -hmm. But they're, they're in really great condition. It's very interesting. And actually um, – so my grandmother had these. My my mom had taken the collection back to our house, but my grandmother had these negatives, and I was visiting her. I've, she lives in Southern California, so I've had much more opportunity to visit her recently. I've been going down and saying hello, and uh, we had a few different conversations about Walter and the photos, and she would kind of pull out a couple things and be like, oh, yeah, we've got these extra things. We talk about the images. And... Uh, then she would say, and we have the negatives around here somewhere. Oh, my. But I, lo I lent them to somebody. I lent them to, like, a friend of mine's son, and I don't remember where I put them. And it was one of those, does Grandma really have these, and why is she talking about them so casually? <laughs> and, oh, yeah, I've just got them around here somewhere. And I went to visit a different time, and she pulled out all his – she had all his Iron Cross medals – and the um, wow. the epaulets from on his shoulders, uh, and I said, "We well, I guess we better look for those negatives." And I made Grandma <laughs> stay up until we found them. <laughs> we digging through the closets of all these photos. She has some other pretty amazing collections that uh, are unrelated to this, but. That's future Kickstarters, it sounds like. Maybe. But, so we, this is an extraordinary collection, and you were in a position that was – I mean, you've got all these really interesting things that happen at once, right? Is You were in a position where you actually saw them at a time when you understood precisely how interesting they were. You've got uh, incredible – the quality of this stuff. The, the state of preservation is really high. And you've got a family interest in it too. And it's also, again, this is, you know, we, we talked about this during your Kickstarter is it was really important to differentiate the fact between this is World War One, This is not World War Two. And I mean, there's always in World War Two you have the Wehrmacht and the SS, a lot of distinction between who was doing what as well. But this is 19, this is in the, the 19-teens. This is uh, this is not a war that had, there's still moral ambiguity about it. But your great-grandfather was not uh involved in heinous war crimes uh, by today's standards. He was he was a soldier. He was out in the front lines like so many English and German and other French and so forth were. It was a terrible war. It was like the one of the worst I in you know, some ways it was worse than World War II, which had as a war as opposed to the, you know, Holocaust and things like that. 
it seemed like during the, the Kickstarter, you needed to make clear that this isn't a German taking pictures during World War II because that might have provoked some negative response from people about what that would have meant. Right. Uh, I, I was very clear throughout the entire project. These are World War I photos. I would mention World War I as much as possible and try to be very clear that that was what was going on. And, and when somebody made a comment, it, it actually very rarely happened that someone would make a comment that I saying it was World War II, where I wouldn't get to it before somebody else did. The the people who are interested in this project, it turns out, are very serious about it. They're very serious about history. They're very serious about pres- like uh, preserving these these images and and understanding what's going on at this time period because that's what's important about it. So they would take that fight on for me, basically. They, if somebody was confused or they made a comment about, and this happened on the Daily Mail, the Daily Mail was one of the first uh, news organizations to pick this up. They had a few people say, oh, this is World War II, you killed my grandfather or something like that. Daily Mail, notoriously a uh, fairly right-wingy sort of uh, uh, from, from, from sort of English publication as well, sure, too. Sure, so tracks a bit of that sort of reader. But they... They wrote a really nice article, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, they it was accurate and everything. Well, they pretty much just quoted me. Oh, they, they pretty <laughs> even better. So they they called. They sent me an email, and it was about three o'clock in the morning, my time, right on the first after the first day of the Kickstarter. So I'd raised, I think, about ten grand or something like that. And I was really worried about it. I was just like, I'm never going to be able to go to sleep. So I tried to get really drunk and try and go to sleep. Uh, and I get this email at three o'clock in the morning and they say, can we talk to you? We want to go to press tomorrow. And I said, yeah, but you better call me right now. So I was kind of out of it. I was, it was really late and I was kind of intoxicated and I had this interview with them. But fortunately, I've been talking about this book so much that I just went on autopilot and just like told them exactly what story was about and you know, nailed it pretty much, and they just quoted me. So their article is basically a direct quote from our discussion in this, what I thought was almost going to be a disastrous interview. <laughs> but I thought that was kind of a fun anecdote. That's good. Well, at least if you were on Ambien, you would have said had a much more interesting interview when they called you. The, I'm uh, sure I would have, uh, yeah. Alcohol is this, this is, uh, I guess we should talk about the transition there. So you have this set of stuff and you're, you, you feel compelled to share it. What's, what was the motivation at this point? You, you, I mean, you think back to finding it and then um, and you're, an, you're an internet guy. You were raised, the internet raised you like some kind of wolf cub and uh, right. um, this is what you do. So you have something that's unique. It's historically significant. It's personal and it's interesting. So what pops into your head at that moment says, I need to do with it? I, when I saw the book, I knew that it was something that other people were going to want to flip through hmm. because the experience of just holding – so I had the very first experience with this is holding the book and flipping through the pages. And that was just such a powerful thing where I'm looking in, looking directly into the past and seeing these people who should be the enemy, but they aren't. They're just people. And it was so powerful and interesting to see that. I actually – immediately Skyped with Shani Jardin from Boing Boing 
and held my laptop up over this <laughs> book and said, you got to see this right now. So she's been – she was sort of advising and encouraging me periodically throughout the process. And yeah, it was just really something that I felt that other people needed to see and that it needed to be seen in that form factor because he made it as an, as an album. He made it as a book and I – felt like it needed to be shown in the full quality of what it is because that's what makes it so unusual, this this collection at, in its entirety. This is what's great too is that there's that power of print and um, of, of the many themes on this podcast that seem to arise accidentally. It's that the palpable thing. You want to hold something real in your hands and you could have taken all the photos, scanned them at high resolution, posted them to – Flickr under some license or made your own site, and that's a different thing. It does. It's a everything is in isolation, or you're scrolling through pages of photos. It's different than having the high resolution of your eyeballs and a spread and a and holding and seeing the physical reality. You wanted to share that experience, not the digital one, which had been a lot of your life to that point. It's something ephemeral too, and that's what I. This is what I like about gifts. When it's digital, it's it's something that you can flash very quickly and close, and you can mm. move. You get that very quick experience in seeing things rapidly, and you get to move on from it and and get that sort of little high. But this is something that requires a lot more consideration. It was something that I wanted people to spend an hour with and to sit there with another person and really be able to look at it. And so I made the book big. The book is large to begin with, but the book that people are buying as a print object is uh, 11 by 17. It's huge. I had to figure out shipping and all these different things. And I talked to a bunch of different printers and they all said, you're nuts. And I actually looked at Blurb, which does 11 by 13 inch books, but it wasn't the right quality. So preserving that quality and, and I wanted you to spend that time with this. And to really want to look at this book for an hour or more and to think about it on multiple days. And I wanted it to be something that maybe didn't fit on your bookshelf properly. So you couldn't put it away that you would have to think about and keep out on your coffee table and, you know, dust it off periodically and actually have to deal with this big book in your life. There's a visual thing that's interesting uh, as somebody with a design background that, you know, there's this big trade-off where even with dense displays, high pixel per inch displays we have now uh, to look at images with, like you have that trade-off of continuous tone where the scan you do of a photograph, of a black and white photograph or, or a multicolor, if you do a four-color scan of these ones that have some tinting or what have you, uh, the tone is preserved when you look at it in emitted light on a screen, any kind of display. And so there's a certain amount of detail you get from that where the eye interpolates um, detail and you can zoom in and out. You can go in as far as the resolution of that you've scanned that down to the grain of the film if you scan it that high. But the print book, because you have to use half-tone screening, I mean there are other options. There are continuous tone printing methods as well. But you used offset printing so there's a, a half-toning process in which continuous tones are turned into this grid of dots. But I'm assuming based on everything you said that this is a very fine – halftone screen you used. So there's something about the acuity and detail you can see in the printed page that's going to be superior in some ways in terms of the eye's relationship to the object and what we can perceive in detail to having it on a screen. Or at least that's my perception. Where do you feel that balance lies between the sort of, you know, the advantage of, con of preserving continuous tone uh, versus the halftone on a printed page? 
I've actually made it pretty easy for people to experience both. When you buy a book, you get the digital downloads of all the high-resolution images and the PDF. So you can you can do both of these things. Um, I don't know that much about the printing process. I do know that the proofs that I've seen so far look pretty much exactly like the book. And they're very, very well replicated. So you can mm-hmm. pretty much lay it out directly on top of the book. And it's the same size and color and everything. And that that's what I wanted to go for. Let's pause so I can tell you about Stack, a great way to bring print publications back into your life. It's pretty cool. Every month, Stack sends out a different independent magazine. You never know what you're going to get next, but you do know it will be a beautiful, intelligent publication you probably wouldn't otherwise have seen. You'll open the package every month and get a surprise. It's not another solicited copy of Details or Bicycling Magazine, as I received inscrutably from those publishers last month. Instead, it's something delightful. You can find them at stackmagazines.com, but wait for the discount code. Most of the magazines on Stack are made outside the United States and would cost $20 or more at an American newsstand if you could even find them there. But with the Disrupt 13 code, D-I-S-R-U-P-T-1, one three, they're delivered to your door for less than fifteen dollars each. Go to stackmagazines.com, type in disrupt thirteen, and pay forty-five dollars for three months delivery. That's off the normal price of fifty dollars, or one hundred and seventy dollars for twelve months of delight off the normal one hundred and ninety dollars subscription price. Stack only ever sends out the current issue of any magazine. They handpick the best hard-to-find English language titles for your reading pleasure. Stack delivers the world's best independent magazines directly to your door every month. I know this sounds a little ironic, coming from a guy who publishes an electronic periodical, but I love print, and we're about to bring the magazine into print as well. Give Stack a try for some eclectic wonder from around the world. Stackmagazines.com, code DISRUPT13. Now back to the podcast. I'll jump in. There used to be this thing um, back in the olden days when I was dealing with print. It used to be that it was very hard to get uh, a screen as fine that that would actually fool the eye. I mean, that's that thing about retina displays and, and when they were going on at Apple about this is so good you won't be able to see the pixels anymore. And mm. it's, it's true for a lot of people. And now you have even higher density than Apple's highest density. You know, Android phones that are at 500. I mean, there's crazy densities. So you stop seeing the dots. You only see the the shape and the curve with halftone screening. When I, in my in my print head heydays, late 1980s, it was very expensive to be able to afford to do all the steps for the prepress and then to find a printer that could print at a high enough screen resolution that you would see something that had com- that was comparable. And now it's actually much more affordable and it's much more common, even though print is ostensibly on the decline, right? Um, it's still easier to get something like what you wanted printed in the quantities you wanted at the quality you wanted than you would have during, let's say, prints, you know, the apex of print as a, as a delivery technology for photographs or what have you. The process on my end has been very easy. I, I actually had a designer advising me throughout the whole process of choosing a printer and looking at proofs. And I went with offset printing. I, I, I don't know much of the technical details on that, but I, I'll put some, I'll put some links and people should go by pocket pal and they can read notes. I'll put some links in about it. Yeah. Uh, I, I went with a, so I, I was originally looking or getting bids from directly from China, but now I'm, uh, when I put up the Kickstarter, I got a few people who approached me and that was one of the things that was really interesting about the Kickstarter was the number of people who came to me to help me. And 
I'm now working with a company called Four Color Print Group that does a pretty excellent job. I'm, I've been very, very impressed by their work. And where, where's their printing plan? Is that in the United States? No, they, they do their pre-press in the U.S., mm-hmm. but they do their actual printing, I think, in Hong Kong or somewhere in China. Oh, that's great. So you get to see – so they're sending you, FedExing you or shipping you proofs and so forth. You're on the same – you know, within three time zones and all of that. Right. And they, then they have their representatives – uh, wherever their presses are to handle the, you're not going to, you're not flying to Hong Kong, I assume, for a press check. No, not yet, at least. No, that's I, fun though. I, I could, I guess, there. but <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going. It's to. fun. You get to be in these giant factories at all hours of day and night, and they pull sheets off and ask you to look at them under loops, and it's it's another kind of experience, but possibly not one you need. But I, you know, I think I'm getting ahead of your story a little bit too, as I was getting into the press part. Is you plan this Kickstarter campaign? With uh, you know military precision, which is perfect for something involving World War One. But you had ideas about this, and and um, we've talked a bit about this. You've a buddy Dan Shapiro who did a um, insanely successful. If we want to, I mean, from every different angle, right? He did this thing called Robot uh, Turtles, and you can go to search on that on Google. I'll put in to the show notes. He raised six hundred and thirty-one thousand dollars against his twenty-five thousand dollar goal. Right. So pretty good. It's a te- it's a way to teach programming fundamentals to kids three and older. So it's kind of got that. Um, was it a, a logo and um, a, there's always there's been a lot of attempts over the years to do this, and some of them have really stuck. Uh, so um, this guy, he's a friend of yours, lives in my hometown of Seattle here. And uh, when you said, "All right, I need to do something about this. I want to produce." A thing people can hold their hands that's physical, and I want it to be huge. <laughs> Where was the piece? How did you go from I have a plan to I have a budget to I have started my Kickstarter? What what were the steps in that process? I spent a long time researching the book. I, I went to some places in Europe and, and retook Walter's photos. Mm. Uh, I, I spent a long time working on this. And one of the things that Dan and I spent a lot of time Dan, – Dan and I pretty much talk – almost every night. And he's, he's a very successful entrepreneur that I met at food camp a while ago. And he, he and I would discuss, we talk about Kickstarter pretty much all the time. So for, <laughs> I, I made my first When's your podcast about Kickstarter starting up? Just record those conversations. And put them on. <laughs> yeah. We, we've talked about that. I don't know if, I don't know if we're actually going to do that. Cause there's something nice about having a private conversation yeah, where true. we can talk about all kinds of random stuff. But uh, he, he and I have been discussing this for a long time, and we've been looking at different statistical analyses of Kickstarter and uh, things like where – how much money do you need to make to, or what percentage do you have to hit? I think it's something like about, when you hit about 50 percent of your goal, you have like a 95 percent confidence in completing Kickstarter. Right. And it's, it's actually pretty interesting how, how well those whole things hold true. So we tried to make some – uh, some guesses or try to build a model of what makes a successful Kickstarter. And you can see that in mine where I've reached about twice my goal. And then we took a lot of the things that I did and Dan built on it. And he, he did a better job with his Kickstarter than I did. He took his, cause he had, he just took time off entirely and really, uh, really demolished his, his goal. And I was trying to still do a little work on the side Oh, yeah, I got the chronology here wrong. I, I was thinking this was – his Kickstarter actually started just before yours ended. So his ended only in uh, late September. Yours that's right. uh, ended in very early September. That's right. So you're, you're actually seeing uh, his Kickstarter build on a lot of the things that we thought would work and then kind of proved in my Kickstarter. 
So some of the some of these things are uh, involved in how do you tell this story? How do you make a video that is uh, very successful? How do you line up your products and your rewards to drive people in a specific way? And to so Kickstarter is it, Kickstarter is a very well-built marketing machine, basically. It's it's designed to make it easy to sell these products, if but you have to have the marketing process behind it. So, in in both of mine and Dan Dan's experiences, we we were both very well connected uh, with the press and with lots of influencers like yourself and a bunch of other people who we can get get some help with. But we also built uh, communities behind our our products, and I, I worked on showing this to Reddit pretty frequently. Mm-hmm. So by the time that I actually launched my Kickstarter, I'd been talking about this on Reddit's history subreddit for over a year almost, or about almost exactly a year. And then I pa- launched it and said, here's this photo collection that I've been working on, and now I'm making it available to you, and you know what this is, and here, off you go. Like here, And it was on the front page of Reddit immediately. And that that's just building that audience up, basically. But we, we have some general ideas regarding um, videos, which I think are interesting. Uh, if you look at a project called Hexi, the Hexapod robot, yeah. you'll see that. I think that is the perfect Kickstarter video. It's a minute long. It describes the process. It explains how long he's been working on it. It explains why he needs to make the, why he feels like why, this is my friend Joe Schlesinger, why Joe feels like he needs to make a cheap hexapod robot for education, and why this is so important. And it's kind of funny, and it gets you a little bit interested and emotionally involved in this thing. And then off you go, and you're suddenly you're buying a two hundred dollar robot. <laughs> and yeah. I, Wait, wait, so tell what are the principles then? So let's walk through that. So you you mentioned here it was short. It describes it really well. What were, what were the goals with yours? Where you've got a you've got a book, which is a different cell than a than a, uh, a hexapod uh, robot, of course, or a, or a educational game like Robot Turtles. Sure. Um, what what did you set out to do in this uh, in the video? Well, I, I remade my video repeatedly, mm-hmm. and so I stuck to the one minute goal. It's really got to be a minute long. Kickstarter actually keeps track of how many people finish your video and and make knows what the completion is completion rate is for that. I think I had about seventy seven percent or something like that. Oh no, that's very interesting. Okay. Uh, so that, that's actually something that's important to them, and it should probably be important to you too that they finish the video and then go on to look at the Kickstarter. Um, one the things that I needed to represent are. I had a very general idea. There's there's some sort of general things that are really important about my project, which is the the quality, which is a lot of the stuff we've been talking about now. The quality of the the images, the the size of the collection, and sort of the general idea of what Walter's experience is like and why this is historically important. So I drive those points home repeatedly through the video. I show close-ups of the album. I show my, I, myself flipping through the pages to sort of demonstrate the general size of the collection. 
Uh, I showed the negatives in, I have like a light box. I held it up against my skylight in my room and showed the, the, the negatives in the, in the video. Um, and I tried not to be too serious about it. I actually made some that were much more, I made some vi- versions of the video that were much more serious and, and somber and those didn't really work very well. So I was really kind of driving the idea of like, yeah, you should support this project, but not only should you support this project, you should support this project in the context of getting a physical book. Right. Because look at the physical book that I have. Look at the product that I, I effectively already have the product. I have the physical book. I want you to have that too. And so that's what I, that's how I spent my time in my video is, is I had a very clear idea of what the principles that made my project special were. And then I drove them home repeatedly. Mm -hmm. And so I did that in the video. I did that in the text and I should talk about the the quality of the book and, and how the printing process, why I need this, this much money and how the printing process is going to be so much more uh, high quality and better because of the, because of the Kickstarter money. And I drive it home in the rewards, which talk about, getting a beautiful book and talk about how it's going to be gorgeous printing and stuff like that. And those, even those small words showing up in that context, right where you're making the decision to buy something, I think that really helps. So you're, so you, that's a very interesting strategy. I see. And I've, and I've seen this used before, but it's, it's, there's this conflict at, um, at crowdfunding sites between people saying, do this to support – I mean for you're not talking about a donation thing like uh, you know, App Camp for Girls, which I supported as a nonprofit and like it's – all right, you're going to help girls learn to program and change the world, right? Excellent. I love that and they're a great group of people. Easier for a charity to explain where the money is going. It's all going to whatever. But when you've got a for-profit thing, people have this um, – it's this weird perception of like what – where does this money go? And you were trying to give people a story. Here's where the money's going. It's not you're not putting more money in my pocket, although you're getting paid for your your time and involvement. Of course you are, mm-hmm. but it's you're trying to convince them that there's uh, I mean, Amanda Palmer, who I mentioned every other podcast. I swear is like the backlash for her was people thought she got a million one point one million dollars, and all she had to do was release an album that was already recorded, which is of course not anything like what the budgets and what actually she was using the money for. But that was the perception. It was a huge backlash because it was so out of scale from what people could deal with. It seems like here, I mean, you raised 10% of what she raised. You're not getting people saying, wow, you don't need $113,000 or whatever to print a book. And But you do. People understand. You seem like you made the case for this is not a cheap process. I'm doing something of high quality and you are going to have a physical result, not an electronic one. You'll get that too. But there are physical rewards you can get that show – the cost and the system it takes to go from where we were to getting this thing in your hands. It it seems like a really great approach to take. I actually did get some complaints about my original goal. About the 50, because it was $50,000 was your original target, right? Uh, Yeah. Right. So I I got some complaints saying $50,000 is a lot to print a book. Like, oh, you know, you say you need a buffer. Uh, How big is that buffer, Dean? Like, is that going to go straight to Dean? And I'm like, fascinating. Well, people don't know what people don't know what print costs, though. Either, I mean, you know, there's a and and then all the overhead, you have all this fixed cost. You have your time. I mean, there there is a persistent thing with crowdfunding and with a lot of things to do with the arts and the internet, uh, or even personal projects. That, like, as a creator, you should get paid. Kickstarter is not about you not getting paid. A lot of Kickstarter projects. 
work the funding so that 100% of the Kickstarter money is all seed money for something, right? And others are worked so that the person involved actually makes a profit from the Kickstarter. But there's no model that says one is better than the other. Sometimes you go close to the bone so that you print, you know, I know friends who've done Kickstarters where, you know, they're printing 5,000 copies of a book. 100% of their net money from the Kickstarter goes to the printer and they donate their labor to their own selves. But then they only have to send a thousand out for it and they have 4,000 copies to sell for the next X years, which are a hundred percent profit for them. But so what's the difference between that? I mean, I'm asking you rhetorically because you're involved. It's like, what is the difference between that and putting and and actually making a profit, making a return on your hourly investment of time from the actual Kickstarter funds? It's, it's a conflict. Some people have a conflict about it as backers, but I don't know if they're the ones who want to back stuff anyway. I, I think that by selling a premium product and I pricing it relatively high, I actually avoided a lot of the most troublesome backers. They were already priced out of this thing. Yeah, because this they is weren't, they weren't interested. As soon as it was over twenty five bucks, they didn't care anymore. And, and that's a, that's a very that's fine by me. That's a significant this, price point on Kickstarter. Twenty five bucks is a real inflection point. Right. Exactly. So as soon as I I have things available for twenty five bucks. But they're not things that you're going to expect anytime soon, and and I made it clear that this was going to take a while, and that was kind of just the people who are interested can get in on this. But but what I what I did, and this is another thing that Dan and I talked about pretty extensively, the the model that we found that we found worked time and time again was Kickstarters should have one thing that they sell, mm-hmm. they should have one product, and you should sell that primarily. So in my case, this is a physical book. I'm not selling the writing of the book. I'm selling the printing of the book, and, and, and you will receive a physical book. Right. And so I drove that point home exten- extensively throughout the Kickstarter. This is what you want to buy. Yes, you can buy a PDF. Yes, you can buy the digital downloads. But what you really want is this physical book. And you really want to find that 75 bucks and and get the book because this is going to be great. And let's talk about this thing that I am, I am in love with this thing you did. And, um, and I know you said this wasn't original to you, but I think we should talk about it because I think it's a great uh, lesson to people planning um, crowdfunding of this kind is the super early bird special. And then some of the repercussions of that too. We've talked since about how that played out is, is you had figured out a price for the book, uh, but you offered essentially a limited discount for people who got in early. Right. So, so that's designed actually. So I, I, the book had uh, two, I guess, three separate price breaks originally. One was the super early bird special at $70 and one was the early bird special at 75 And then everybody else had the opportunity to get a book for $89 or more, but you'd also get a photo print with that. Mm-hmm. So, so that kind of alleviated the the hit or that at least that was the theory uh that it turns out that that price break between 75 and 89 didn't actually work very well mm. and i had to kind of create a just the book thing at some point to drive sales more so the the concept behind this is when you put something that has a limit on it and you give a discount it can get people interested in making those purchases very quickly and the idea is we talked earlier about the percentages of funding and when you have confidence in your Kickstarter finishing and completing. Mm-hmm. The 
early bird specials are designed in such a way to have limits that put me at different confidence intervals. So for $70 and 100 backers, if I sell out of that early bird special, I've made seven grand, which is like 7% or no, it's, I guess it's a little closer to like 15%. Yeah, right. Because um, you're so fifty, yeah, fifty thousand dollars, right? So you're, but you're, you're a good portion of the way there, and you've given people an incentive to jump on early, right? So I've said, I've at that point, I've said, or I've made it clear, this is something you should support because there are a hundred people who are behind it, and it's already raised seven grand, and it's already on its way, and you should just go for it. And then there's the second price break that says, oh, you probably missed this early thing. But it's only five dollars more, and you should really you should really do this. So by getting you into that idea of like, oh, I missed this one thing, and then jump on the next thing, it got me very quickly to I think, God, I have to pull up my graphs here. I, I made a whole bunch of charts in advance that show exactly how how this all breaks down. But it's yeah, it's it's largely designed to hit these different breaks in Kickstarter. So the super early bird special that would get you over the top because there'd be a hundred people, you'd hit seven thousand dollars, and that would be you know good. It'd be uh, like almost fifteen percent of the way there, and that kind of moves your chart up. And then you have people like, oh, I missed that thing, but I can still get in. Right. So the second tier, the early bird special has three hundred available slots, which gets me to twenty nine thousand five hundred dollars including the early bird special and the second tier. And then I had higher level rewards and things like that. But basically, if I sell out of both of those things, I'm already 60% done very, very quickly. Or, yeah, that, I guess that's right, 60%. So I'm very, very quickly hitting this point where I hit the 95 or 99% confidence interval. That's the whole point behind those specials is to get you very rapidly to, yeah, this is going to sell out. Like, yeah, let's do that. So actually, this worked remarkably well. I broke my goal in three days and was able to move on to doing other things and go back to actually thinking about the book and writing the book <laughs> and building it. And so that part of that was this, this idea of how to generate interest through those different price breaks. And part of it was that Kickstarter promoted it very, very heavily. And I think that that's something that you can you can make wise decisions that make it an obvious choice for Kickstarter to promote you. They like to promote stuff that's on – I mean they obviously have the statistics internally too and they know when something is on the upswing and they promote it to increase visibility of it. But they already know it's going to fund. I mean that's – well, I, I'd even say that there's something more to it than that, which is that they, when they, when they approve your project, they're aware of your project and they can mark those things in advance. This is true. And push you immediately, so they don't even they can look at it and kind of say, yeah, this is something that's going to fund or that we want to fund. How early did they promote it? Because they've got their, I mean, they've got a lot of different ways to promote things. So their, their newsletter is, of course, one of them. Um, where in, in this did they promote it? Uh, immediately. Oh, like me. Oh, so it launched, and uh, I'm looking. So, by the way, there's a site I should mention to listeners called Kick Track, K I C K T R A Q, and it's. Uh, 
I don't know if it's reliable while a project is underway because it tries to project the outcome from small amounts of data. And sometimes it shows, you know, this project can raise like $3 million because you raised so much money in the first half hour. But especially retro or retrospectively, you can look at it. I'm looking at this and I have stuff that you had to put into a spreadsheet. And it shows, you know, this huge upswing in the first three days from zero to, you know, 20, 40, and then crossing 50 is successful. And then as it tapers off and it slowly increases, slowly increases until the very end when you have this another big uptick crossed 100 grand and reached your final total and it's it's interesting to look at successful projects that are like yours and see where the inflection points are at and it's one way to gauge whether you're going to succeed or not but it's another also to understand the life cycle of a, of a project that does very well and that achieves its funding immediately you know you didn't get to 50 grand and then get to $500,000 you got to 50 grand and then it tapered off but in the end, you raised over 100% of your target, or 100% more than your target. Right, but it's very slowly going up mm-hmm. the whole time, too, which is, is good. A lot of these things stop going up, basically, and then at the end, they go up. So the most critical days in your Kickstarter are the first three days and the last three days. That's what I hear. And you can kind of see these things happen in my Kickstarter where it's going up sort of a, a good bit more rapidly than in the middle. Well, let's, um, let's talk. So the campaign, uh, you did all this planning. You conspired mm-hmm. with your friend, who then went on and did uh, did ridiculously well with his with his thing. So you have you guys your, your strategy has been successful two times in, uh, in, right. in making it work, which is good. And uh, there's a few extraordinary things I want to talk about about where you're at because I have, as I've said earlier in this podcast, I worked in publishing and I've did like 36 hour layout. St- and things like that in my youth, and um, and you're still young, Mandine. So you have all this energy that has been taken from us oldsters. Uh, before, or, or I shouldn't say before, but uh, you had estimated a delivery date of about December 2013 for the book, um, mm-hmm. and you'd obviously, you know, uh, we talked about this you, earlier in the podcast. You'd gotten bids sort of during the Kickstarter, so you went into it having a budget and an idea of what it would cost, but you actually clearly changed your plans because people approached you. During the process, and that let you you revised your budget while you were underway. But even with that, the Kickstarter is over. How quickly did you lay out this book after the Kickstarter was over? Uh, I well, as, as a web developer, I have a lot of people who I talk to and work with who are involved in design and doing different things. And my friend Star Saint Germain lives down the street from me. And she's a very talented designer. And I said, Star, I need your help right now. <laughs> and <laughs> Drop everything. Yeah, drop everything. Literally. Come over to my house. So she, she basically came over pretty much every day or maybe a couple times a week during the Kickstarter where I was producing this book. And, and she and I went through and laid everything out in InDesign and did, and did the project. And to some extent, this was – I had already – I already knew what I wanted to be building. I, I understood what I wanted to do and I needed that polish that made it really, really nice. Mm-hmm. And Star helped to make it really, really nice. So the, the process was pretty straightforward. It was largely laid out and organized in advance and that was something that I always knew when I made this book that, it, that the thing to do was to, to provide as little – commentary as possible to not make myself appear as though I'm an expert in world war one. What I'm an expert in is Walter's photos mm-hmm. and really the best way to do that, to share that information is just to let Walter's photos speak for themselves. So in the sidebars, I had made some, some comments. I, I made inset photos that make it easier to see certain sections of the, of the book. 
and I blow up some of the photos that I have as negatives or particularly important photos in full page spreads. So it's actually largely pretty, pretty simple design. I had a copy editor, uh, John Sung. He helped me organize how the book is, is written and make sure that I didn't make any spelling errors or anything important like that. Cause you only get to print it once. <laughs> uh, and really it was pretty, pretty streamlined process because I had all my notes written in advance and I had it pretty well organized. And I, I do a lot of different projects on my own. Like we were talking about in the beginning where I kind of get things done and I know exactly how to estimate time on these things and spend and where to spend my time and can kind of guess where, what things are most important to spend my time on. So I really just pushed and got this done. And I had a lot of people complain. I had a few people, not a lot, uh, but I had a, a couple people who were concerned that I wasn't making Kickstarter updates after I met my goal. And then I would come in and just say, by the way, the book is done and at the <laughs> printer and here's the blank. And, and you know, everybody shut up now. <laughs> Here you go. Because they, they, I think a lot of Kickstarter people think that they get taken sometimes. And I, Oh yeah. And we're starting to see more of that. I'm going to devote some future programs to talking about that, but yeah, it's right. People want yeah. they the money. They, there's a lot of interesting, a lot of concern about where the money goes and when it goes, but it's funny because your goal when you started wasn't necessarily to be finished by the time the Kickstarter was done and ready to go to the printer, but in the but you were able to pull that off. Well, it was it was actually. Oh, it was that's crazy. You're a crazy person. Yeah, Dean. Yeah, I'm not. Dean, if you'd I'm asked really me crazy. when you started this, you'd said, "Is it reasonable to do this?" I'd say, "You need three to four months to do this, young man. Even if you stay up all night and and don't sleep and give up everything else in your life, and you did it in a month with your colleagues. That's pretty good." Yeah, I I had um I actually have a calendar that shows exactly based on my estimates from the Chinese printer that I was working with originally when everything should happen. And as of Sunday, I believe the book should be starting printing. And I think by the end of the week, we're actually going to start printing. So I'm pretty much dead on with the calendar. It includes all the pre-press stuff. It includes shipping from China to my house and then from my house out to everybody else. I, I should point out we're talking in the middle of October when we record this little air later. And so uh, so you're further ahead. When people hear this, they'll be like, he's late. Like, no, no, you're actually where you wanted to be on your calendar. No, I'm, I'm dead on. It's uh, Yeah, today is the 14th uh, that we're recording on. And you're giving away secrets. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, well, everyone knows. No, I'm sorry. Everyone knows. Everyone knows what day it is. <laughs> oh God. Uh, yeah. So I had digital proof and print prep, and I have a buffer in there for extra space. And it's yeah, it's pretty well organized to give me time to get it off to Christmas, and that's been the goal the whole time. And I actually uh, started the Kickstarter. I I went and took the estimate that the printer gave me for how long I should spend on print press, pre-press time and how long I should spend on shipping time and different things like that and work back for, backwards from Christmas right. and then gave myself some space and then put the Kickstarter time in. And then I spent like, and then I had, I realized I had about a week to really finish the Kickstarter. So I dropped everything and really finished the Kickstarter, launched it and everything went just fine from there. And and that so it's all been organized out in advance with this calendar that fortunately we're sticking to. All, all I'm going to say is don't walk under any ladders. <laughs> don't cross in front of black cats because as a as a veteran print person, everything is going astonishingly well, and that's fine. Projects do go 
well, but it's it's amazing. Like there's just – there's so many factors in putting anything together and I think your planning was good. Execution is good and uh, you know now you're relying on other people of course and, and, and distant lands and so forth. But it sounds yeah. like you have, a, you have a reliable printer and the whole thing. It's just – it is always astonishing and like, no, this actually uh, – a friend of mine who did a book, uh, Matt Boers, who I spoke to in a previous podcast, mm-hmm. uh, he did a – Kickstarter a little over a year ago and set a date to fulfill it. And he killed himself to work it through because he was writing and doing, I mean, it was both production and also writing new material for it. He got it out the door. All of his major benefits, his book and so forth were there on time. It can happen. And it sometimes involves this kind of commitment of time uh, that, that you put into it to make it happen that fast. But it's also now off your plate, the production part. I mean, you've got all these other stages you're dealing with, but you're not a month uh, or, or almost two months after the Kickstarter and and still have it going. You got it done and then we're able to move on to the later stages, which is kind of fun. Right, yeah. One of the things that worked really well in my favor was when I had people make bids to do the project or to actually print the book, I said, this is – it has to go out for Christmas. And they said, well, I don't know about that. And I said, well, then I'm going to work with somebody else and – they then said, well, we're going to – we'll do it. We'll figure it out. And so they – when I actually had the money behind me and said this is going – this is something that's happening and that's that's pretty much been my process throughout the whole thing is naysayers be damned. This is happening. Come hell or high water, I'm making a book. And that's just been – that's just been it. Well, the callback to the beginning of our conversation is you're the guy people go to when they say, I need this to happen. And you say, I'm just going to take care of it. So you were able to pull that off for yourself. The cobbler's children do have shoes in Dean Putney's house. Right. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. I pretty much just steamrolled the sucker through. And, and that's kind of the – that's yeah, that's very much my, my process in a lot of things is just it's, it's going to get done. It's, it's happening whether you like it or not. And I was once described by a friend who I worked with on a college newspaper as relentlessly competent. And I, I wear that as a badge of courage also. It's just you get it done. <laughs> you try to make everything happen. And if you're lucky, the world universe agrees with you too, which it has in this case. Dean, this is um, – I think this is a great project. I'm a backer. I'm waiting for my book. So I'll keep up on it. And uh, I think so many lessons for people trying to figure out how to approach – crowdfunding successfully it just seems like you it's like planning you spent a long time planning you seeded with reddit the interest now you have access people will say dean you have access to boing boing for something like this but i also would say boing boing likes to cover interesting things and i think if you had no connection to it at all it's very likely you would have found someone's uh, gotten someone's ear i you know i wrote about uh Code Monkey Saves World, the Jonathan Colton, Greg Pak collaboration that um, was a very successful Kickstarter. Also, the comic books from uh, Jonathan Colton songs. I wrote about that for Boing Boing, and there's plenty of other pro- – I mean, Boing Boing is not Kickstarter central. Some days it feels like it because there's so many interesting things happening on Kickstarter. But mm. one can come up with something that's unique and interesting that hasn't been done and get coverage. You were lucky to be inside the organization and to get their support that it aligned with what they want to do for themselves editorially, but you could have gone out and you did go out and get other coverage as well. Well, I, I wrote two features for Boing Boing that show my photos and I gave them the the opportunity to show those photos before anybody else. And one of the things that I, I didn't ask for, but I did anyway, was I designed the layout for those articles myself and I put a nice big 
support this on Kickstarter button at the top. So that was something that I that yeah I I, I used my my connections a little bit there, but but not so much. They they actually paid me to make the the features, and and so this is this has a lot of benefit for them as well. Yeah, I should point out, I mean, this is the funny thing we forget as people trying to promote stuff. I mean, as a writer, I know this and you know this too, is that publications are desperate for interesting content. And you had something where you're like, these are pictures people haven't seen that are about a part of life that people are fascinated in, fascinated with. And yes, you're doing a project with it that you're trying to raise money for, but you are bringing that to a publication that wants to bring interesting things to its readers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they did very well for Boing Boing. It was very much a uh, win-win situation where not only did I get to have a place to point people to to really show what the project was and show those photos, but they got a ton of traffic because I went and put it on Reddit mm-hmm. and I went and told the Daily Mail, you should come look at this thing. And they all linked directly to this. So everybody's linking to Boing Boing, which is exactly what they want. And it did it did very well. It was a very successful feature. Boing Boing, Boing Boing wants to talk about these things. Right. They can't talk about 12000 a year, but they can talk about – and a lot of Kickstarters are regional or very specialized or maybe fall outside the you know, products and so forth. But something that's really compelling and ties in uh, you know, culture, technology, personal angle, um, that's, that's – you're going to find people who want to hear that story and tell it to other people. Yeah, Boing Boing, Boing, Boing does well to curate Kickstarters that they think will be successful too. I yes. think the, va- the vast majority of Kickstarters that Boing Boing talks about uh, get funded. I think that that's correct. I, I agree with you from my experience. And it's so it's it's not a it's not a how do I get into Boing Boing? It's is my project of or any site, it's is my project the kind of thing that will excite readers of a site and get the editors interested in assigning it or letting you be the person who who writes it. Um Dean, this has been, uh, I think it's, you've got two great things going. One is the project, which is terrific, and the other is just the amount of care you took with it. And thank you for sharing your expertise and experience. Sure thing. It's a, my pleasure. You can now support the production of this podcast directly by becoming a patron at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Support us at a level of $1 or more per podcast. At higher levels of support, you get our on-air thanks and more. We'll be adding more patronage benefits over time. You can also sponsor this show. Visit podlexing.com, that's P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We are a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. We're also a happy part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening.